Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edges of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, and I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work to reconnect the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. Learn more about my connectfulness counseling practice and my online workshops at connectfulness.com. In today's episode, we're joined by Francesca Maxime, the host of the Rerooted Trauma, Neuroscience, and Social Justice podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I want to welcome you all back to today's podcast. And I'm, I'm actually here with my husband, James. Hi. Hey. Uh, and James had a chance to listen to this interview. And it feels different than a lot of my other interviews. It, yes. And I wanted to bring you in because, because we are an interracial couple. And... I thought it might be helpful for my listeners to orient themselves a little bit before they dig in and listen to this conversation. So it was a very insightful conversation, but it was very fast paced with a lot of, for me, jargon I've never heard before. I put it together. I understand what it means but it was a bit disorienting at first. So for folks that are listening, that are about to hear this interview, maybe that's just a good thing to know going into it, that the pace of this conversation is a little bit fast. It's fast and deep at the same time. Fast and deep. Yeah. Yeah. And so there may be times where maybe they even need to pause and just kind of take something in and figure out what it means to them or how to sit with it. Right. As they're listening. Right. Yeah. Actually, I had to pause it a few times to kind of go, hmm, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think that in order to listen to this episode, it's important to um, sit with our discomfort at times and be honest about what we don't know. Yeah. Not being white, I think that it might be possible that white people may be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. for me being brown um, it spoke to me yeah yeah so there wasn't so much discomfort for you it was more about resonance resonance and some affirming Yeah. yeah so stay tuned and James and I will uh pop back in at the end of the interview Francesca, welcome. I'm glad to have you here today. Um, it's a pleasure to see you, Rebecca, and uh, you know, engage in this conversation about uh, interracial couples and and just sort yeah. of where we are in this moment and all those kinds of things. But uh, lovely to connect with connectfulness and with you. There are certain considerations at a sort of micro, meso, and macro level around interracial couples that are all pertinent. That may be under the maybe like 
off the radar, you know, like things that you're not really thinking about as being um, uh, things that are impacting the the duo of of your partnership um, or the triad or whatever, if you're poly. But, um, you know, and I think that because of the uprising this summer, because of COVID and the sort of highlighting um, of health disparities and, and the yeah. way in which certain populations are affected and all these things, I've seen in the um, folks that I work with that are in uh, interracial partnerships that um, it's really highlighted some of the ways in which uh, the lived experience of one partner is just not the same as the lived experience of another. And so what I'm hearing in there is just how much harder it is to understand each other's reality. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, no matter who the couple is that's coming in, in my practice, I'm guessing in yours as well, being able to take in and understand and really listen to each other's reality is a huge piece of, of what couples have to navigate and what they have to learn how to do. 100%. And the irony is, is that a lot of couples feel gaslighted or a partner within a couple feels gaslit be, by their partner because it's so, you know, and when I say this, whiteness, white supremacy, white body supremacy, uh, white racial advantage, uh, please know I'm talking about systems of oppression that have sort of favored and prioritized being in a uh, non-melanated, often uh, cisgendered, heterosexual, male, Christian, English speaking, born here in the USA, non-immigrant body that is sort of the, the, the norm, quote unquote, that we've inherited. So it's sort of just like we, we inherit a certain kind of um, way in which uh, everything from our academic institutions and our trainings to the way in which we consider what a marriage should look like to uh, the way in which we should have and engage in child rearing to all kinds of things, sexual practices or activities and things like that, that these are all coming from what would be this sort of supremacist. And when I say supremacist, I mean oppressive, meaning that that description that I just brought out is to be seen as not only centered or normative or supreme, meaning idealized, but also privileged insofar as that it gets to decide, because this is really all about equity and power anyway, um, it gets to decide who wins and who loses, who has access and who doesn't. So this system has been constructed that certain groups of people are favored at the expense, at the expense. This is the part. It's not like favored, like better. It's that I get more because you get less mm -hmm. and I get more out of your labor. I get more out of your sacrifice. See, so, so that's the, the key critical part. And, and that plays out in relationships because that's been going on for centuries. Yeah. And the way in which, for example, one of my black clients who's partnered with a white partner will say, I, I never grew up without anxiety walking down the street. I've seen people, you know, snuffed out. I've seen this and that. I've never not, I've never walked into a gas station late at night when I go upstate about anything and not, you know, been concerned that something is going to be physically, you know, harmful to me. That's never happened. Whereas, you know, their partner has never even considered what that, what those considerations might be like. How am I dressed right now? Who am I with? Could they be my cover? Meaning, am I safer if I bring this person versus that person? And it's all subtle and unspoken in much the same way. Like, I think a lot of times women do things, at least mm -hmm. I speak for myself, you know, to kind of manage situations like underground, um, but that takes a toll. And so to your point, learning how to understand your partner starts with from a mindfulness perspective, knowing how much you don't know. And right. then like, you know, sort of saying, is that so? Are you sure? And let me check it out and be curious about it. And so I want to just circle back because there, there's so much in there. Mm -hmm. When you say slow it down and know what you don't know, one of the big pieces in there it, that I'm hearing is it's, some, it's often very hard to know what we don't know. And because there is, there just is this massive system of oppression. Part of knowing what we don't know is knowing that we don't know a lot, that we don't know our partner's full experience. Mm -mm. Yeah. 
we, yeah. we don't. Well, because what's, I guess, I guess really what I want to hammer home is what's been normalized is actually an oppressive system. Totally. So like, I guess, I just don't think people get it. They think things are like neutral, but it's not neutral. No, it's, it's focused on the white, heterosexual, male, Protestant, Catholic, able, English speaking person in power. Right. And our entire normalized um, culture, society is built around keeping that person in power. Yeah. And that's right. And so when we look at, for example, the recent election where 53% of the people who were white women voted for Trump in 2016, and now we saw the numbers tick up to 55, people are like, how did that, you know, what is that about? And um, the, the, the idea there is, is they're choosing race over gender. They're choosing power and privilege and affinity over, for example, um, you know, sisterhood, you know, and, and it's, it's just very interesting because, and I'm, you know, sort of speaking in binary terms right now, but that's not old. I mean, that's not new. That's very old. If you look at people like Catherine Bryan, who was the one who accused Emmett Till, who was 14 when he was murdered for allegedly whistling at her in a store, which she later recounted, uh, recanted, excuse me, meaning that that didn't actually happen. Um, but he was violently murdered by this woman's uh, husband, <clears throat> who was later found out to be a domestic abuser and, um, you know, uh, and his friends and then let off by an all white jury that this this whole thing is she couldn't she couldn't she was a mom. She couldn't ally with her momness with this woman who had a 14 year old son. Yeah. Um, and and I think that this is pertinent to partnership and to couplehood because this idea of prizing what you just said is what's centered in this sort of oppressive system, this normalized oppressive system is something that I know a lot of nice guys who are just like, you know, white cishet males that are in relationships that just don't know what they don't know to put to your point. Yeah. And the invitation is, well, there's maybe some classes or some books or things that you just might want to at least start with to be aware of. You know, it's not going to fix it everything, but at least be aware if you're dating folks who are um, who are non-white. Yeah, even if you are. And I also want to hold space for those who are in interracial and mixed um, relationships where there is some awareness, and still there is some um, misses in terms of their understanding of each other. There are um, couples I know of, some in my practice, some outside of my practice, where um, with this time in politics, with um, COVID and protests, where often it's the white partner that finds it's really important to be out there protesting and the partner of color who is struggling more with putting themselves at risk, whether it's um, in the protest or it's in regards to COVID. And there are some other struggles that are coming up there that couples just have to navigate. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime the white partner wants to show up at a protest or do, you know, work about phone banking, you know, and, and, and you know, wants to do prison abolition work or something, that's great, go do it. Like, I'm all for that. Um, don't expect that your partner who's a partner of color is gonna be down with it because they've already been dealing with microaggressions and all kinds of systemic, they've already been navigating and doing heavy lifting around stuff that you don't even see that like, you know, grain of grain by sand has created a, you know, a Sisyphean kind of, you know, sense of, of burden that is put on, right? It's like a lot of people in this individualistic Western rugged individualism, you know, meritocracy, sort of non-collectivist society that we're in, you know, think that we're in some kind of a Victorian novel or something where our romantic partnerships are supposed to be peaceful and non-conflictual and that we're supposed to have these ideas around we should do stuff together and, you know, whatever. I say no. The partner who's been marginalized is already burdened with this. So you can go and do these things, but don't be performative, use them as learning experiences and be humble about it. We know that the social determinants of health for, you know, Latinos, indigenous folks, black folks are, you know, 
frontline, you know, you're, you're, you're out there delivering groceries, you're, you're doing all the things that put you in contact with COVID, you're perhaps in smaller, you know, living quarters and stuff like that. Um, because socioeconomically you were denied home ownership and loans and stuff that were afforded to white people. I mean, the whole, there's a reason why these things are the way they are. Um, that, yeah, if you can have agency and you can say, I need to keep my home safe and I don't want to actually like bring this in, then I say, great, do it. If you're the white partner who wants to go out and do the protest and the person of color doesn't want you to go because they want to keep their home safe, then listen to that and stay home and go find another way to be a real ally. I mean, I think that's totally fair and not ridiculous at all. Yeah. Let's get more in there with the lens. I know both you and I have, we, we both have studied with Terry Real. We both talk about RLT. We bring that into our work. Um, and so much of the conversation in RLT has a lot to do with um, grandiosity and shame, better than, less than, inferior, inferiority and uh, supremacy. And that is so much a part of what couples navigate in terms of their power dynamics for all couples every day. And for interracial mixed couples, I think this is perhaps something that we just need to really pay more attention to. Yeah. I mean, Terry talks about overt and covert narcissism and shame being sort of an, you know, it, you know, quote, shame is sort of a narcissistic position because it leaves no room for anybody else's feelings because you're just spending all your time feeling shitty about yourself. And like, you know, you then just sort of like feel bad about feeling bad, but that keeps you not doing anything, but you feel good about feeling bad so you justify you're not doing anything and I most... just want to pause you because I don't think I've ever heard I don't think I've heard Terry say this piece no he didn't say it I said it you say it so that, oh. that shame is a form of narcissism I say it's a form of narcissism Terry doesn't say that I say that it's, but it's I... like my, my mind is doing this right now as I take that in because I'm, I'm having a yes moment and like you just put into words something that I don't think I've heard before well that's good we, yeah, we hear about grandiosity being narcissistic, but we don't hear about shame also having that. People love their shame. That's what white fragility is. It keeps me from doing anything. I don't have to be accountable. I can just feel bad about it and I don't have to actually do anything. And then I can complain about when I try to do something, somebody's bitching at me because I didn't do it right, but I tried and I was, you know, it's this whole thing. And it's funny because one of my black clients is married to a white woman and, you know, he speaks freely about like, my God, the fragility of this woman, like, you know, raised Catholic, raised in this basic, you know, sort of like middle-class working class background or whatever. And, you know, the idea of the lack of freedom of being able to just sort of like talk freely about sex and sort of what are we supposed to be doing right or not right or not really like, and being a hundred percent down with like, yeah, like I'm down with Black Lives Matter. Like, no, my family does use the N word, but I'm down with Black Lives Matter. I mean, like that's a lot to hold, but that the fragility or the sort of shame, the, you know, is very narcissistic because it's, it's sort of like, I don't have room for holding space for the totality of my partner's feelings as they're witnessing shared bloodshed on the streets constantly with the Breonna Taylors and George Floyds. And part of that is because with Pope Nicholas and the doctrine of discovery and the ways in which Christian imperialism, you know, gave sanction to all the folks to go basically convert all of the savages and, you know, all of that garbage that, that white people who are of that Christian, you know, background, regardless, I mean, I was raised in the Catholic church, often have this idea that it's an individualistic culture. It's me, mine, it's up to me to like make it better. And it's, they're taught shame. They're taught shame as a way of quote unquote, doing good. They're taught shame as a way of being helpful. They're, you know, and you see it in the helping professions, therapist professions, it's like, and I'm like, no, 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 that is not the way that collectivist cultures think whether it's um, an Asian culture, an African culture, an African-American culture, they're all in it together. You'll hear people say, what's up fam? You know, because they're saying, how are we with this? Whereas the shame is very much like, oh no, I need to kind of get small and not exist. And someone in a more collectivist culture is like, I'm fine here because I got my tribe and I want to expand into that. So it's a whole 
thing there about shame. Yeah. I, I, and I, I'm, I'm also picking up on, on a whole nother angle in what you're talking about too. And, and I hear the piece and the, the power that the shame brings because it keeps the, the it keeps the conversation centered on how badly I feel. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> as you start talking more about this collectivist culture versus this more like individual narcissistic shame-based white fragility, I'm thinking back to a conversation I had um, almost a year and a half ago now with Resma Menekem. And, you know, Resma was talking a lot about in order to, uh, to live in a more somatic abolitionist way, one of the things we really need to do is create culture. And it's, that's exactly what's missing when we're individualists, when we're living in this me first kind of place, when we're focused on our shame, what we're missing is the culture. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole reason why that is, right? The whole part of it was assimilation. Like you had mm -hmm. to give up your culture to be American. So you become American by not being Jewish, by not being Italian, by not being Irish, by not being whatever, because you were smelly or you were stupid or you were whatever. And so you literally shed your clothes, you shed your customs, you shed your language. And then in the case of some folks like the Irish, you're given certain props just by being what they then sort of turned at a certain point, even though you're in the same class of laborers as being white, so that you have the land that other people who are black don't. You have access, so then you get certain power. So then there's competition. And so like creating culture is something that you can take a class called whiteawake.org, whiteawake.org. And they it, the class is called Before before we were white. And so you take that class and you go on a journey where you figure out where am I from? What did I lose? What did we used to do? What are we not able to do? Nobody grew up with Wonder Bread. Nobody grew up with Skippy peanut butter. This is not where we come from. And now we have this like, I need to spend my $50 on one jar of organic honey or something. Well, that's garbage also, because it just feeds into the neoliberal capitalistic, you know, framework yeah. of, you know, monetizing uh, well-being. So this idea of culture, if you read a book called, um, Behind the Veil, Behind behind the White Veil, I think it's called. And the guy uh, who wrote it is the co-founder of the Center for the Study of White American Culture. He mm. and his wife, who's Black, and, um, you know, a few other people I run that. I had one that. of their teachers on a while ago. Robin Alprin came on. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it, Lifting the White Veil, that's what it's called. And he talks about white pride that isn't white supremacist pride, not like neo-Nazi crazy pride, white pride, like to Dresma's point, like, what are we, what, what are the things that we've done well, like regardless, like ethically and with integrity and like, you know, ways in which we've connected and sure, you know, be, it's okay to like have a sense of pride there. Like you don't have to be ashamed of everything all the time, but also go back to your history yeah, and try to incorporate. Yeah. Like your rituals, like your, your music, your, your food or whatever it is. And uh, because otherwise you're going to find yourself like doing a spiritually bypassing situation. We are culturally appropriating someone else, which happens in this wellness space of super yoga, super mindfulness, super shamanistic ayahuasca people that, you know, I mean, yeah, okay, but also, did you ask permission? Did they give it to you? Are you aligning yourself with that lineage in a deeper way, or are you sort of appropriative with it? So, yeah, there's there's just so so much so much in there to wrap our heads around, and I think this is where I just keep coming back to this: knowing what it means to know what you don't know, and it's it's all about the many layers that for many of us, we don't have, we don't hold in mind. We don't even have knowledge of within our bodies. And yet it's there, it's there on many different levels that it's living inside of us and with us and in our relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm a mindfulness teacher. So the basic Buddhist path is sort of like clear seeing. So the whole point is, you know, the way out of suffering is you acknowledge the suffering. The suffering is old age, sickness, and death. The three poisons are ignorance, uh, craving, and, 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 what is it? Greed, hatred, and 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 delusion, um, and and so you're really sort of looking at uh, how do we walk our way out of this, um, and and I think the first thing is just naming that what we've considered normative is actually oppressive. It's not 
an equity-based structure. And if we're in a white body, even if we became white, meaning even if we're Jewish, even if we're Irish, even if we're Italian, even if we're whatever, even if we assimilated because we are able to because our melanin levels were such that that was, was possible. you know, possible, right? Um, that, 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 the, that, the, that we benefit in a way in the system that uh, is based on, you know, advantage uh, based on less melanin <laughs> um, that is just completely constructed. There's no genetic basis. We're 99.9% the same DNA. I mean, that's shown across the board. Um, and, that, and that when we start naming that, and we start naming things like, okay, so then that means that if what's normative has been oppressive, then it's fair to say that, in fact, we live in a society that is inherently constructed to be racist because race was used in service to capitalism and extraction and the oppression. That's why this all started. It was about money. It was about greed. So to use the Buddhist teaching of the basic fundamental problem is greed and, you know, sort of wanting more and more and more, whether it's more pride, like the grandiosity people you see in relationships, like back to Terry Real, get addicted to their grandiosity, whether it's shame, you can get addicted to your shame, and then you become, you know, white silence is violence, and you don't engage with actually doing the work of being a good ally, or um, whether it's actually money and extraction and, you know, oppression and stuff like that. So how do we build a more equitable partnership which is to use Terry's term, full respect living. How mm -hmm. do we live in a more full respect living world? That's the whole point. How do we create and build that? We already belong to one another. How do we embody that? Right, so we belong to one another. We wanna focus on embodying that. And this is where my work, I, I keep always coming back to keeping the whole context of the world that we're living in in mind and focusing on the couple because this is where I think we have the most influence um, might not be the only place we have influence. And if we can pay attention to what's happening inside that ecosystem that we live in every day, that we breathe into the, the person that we wake up next to, the person that we eat our meals with, if we can shift the, um, and clean up and make less toxic the space between us, then I believe that has a really profound and big impact on how we also walk out into the rest of the world. Hundred uh, percent. I mean, let me give you a couple of examples from cases of mine, like you know, that may be shedding light on some of this. You know, one of my, um, you know, there's a situation where there's a, you know, a black partner and a white partner, and and they're in upstate, you know, New York, and you know one would not go into the gas station, uh, you know, to return the moving van or whatever it is, uh, you know, at the parking lot without the white partner, because uh, doing so, you know, because there was like a cop car at the coffee shop around the corner or whatever. And it would have been more one of those ideas of like, well, what are you doing here? Or why are you here? Or who are you with? Or what do you, you know, and that could go bad very quickly. Um, and that lives in this person's body. And so they have to be very careful about, about that. Another one is, um, it was a birthday party. You know, it's COVID. Everybody wants to go and do something for uh, their birthday. Okay, well, let's take a trip with our partner down to, you know, South Carolina or North Carolina or Florida. I forget where it was. Um, let's take a drive since we're not going to fly. And so then it was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Like, what's my plan? Like, how am I going to navigate that? If we're driving, what happens if we get pulled over? And we went through a safety plan, like the way you would with domestic violence victims around like, well, what happens when, you know, who knows that you're on this trip? Who's keeping track of you? Like, what are the people that you can call? Like, um, if you do get pulled over, if you're a black, you know, partner in that car, you know, going down there, what does your partner know about what to do in that situation? Uh, are they going to freak out? Are they going to pull out their cell phone? You know, what's the limit? Play out all the different scenarios. If a cop pulls you over and pulls out his gun or asks for this or that, how can you prevent it from happening by putting certain things in place? I mean, and, and, and at the end of the day, I said, you know what? You may or may not want to take this trip right now, because to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know that I can't guarantee that it's I can't guarantee that you can make that trip safe for you. And um, they ended up not taking that trip. And then more subtly, like people will just sort of go through the day to day around. Something like, for example, another scenario was a client was at a wedding 
with a bunch of white people because the person that they're married to is white. And one of the off-duty cops who was a guest at the reception came back with drinks from the bar and he had been drinking and offered to give someone some. And I say this because this is what they said, um, nigger juice. Mm -hmm. And so like then that was somehow something that was not shared with the client, not shared with what was going on in their life around their partnership and held because of shame. And then then the client finding out later is like, what are you talking about? Like, I need to know this. Like, are these the people that you're associating with? Like, what, like, how are you feeling about that? Did you not think that it would matter to me? Like me not being aware of this means that something could have been terribly wrong. Um, something yeah. could have gone terribly wrong. So these are like real lived experiences. And then how they responded to was, you know, like a rupture and repair. Like, let's have that conversation. Let's, let's have the conversation about what this means to me. Or in the other cases, let's have a conversation with a couples therapist to deal with the racial conflict around you're not getting my lived experience, someone who's schooled in that. So it, they're, they're real examples. And, and something that you shared with me before we started recording was also that it's not always about how you, the couple, sees yourselves, but it's also about how the outside world sees you. Anyone who's not in the center of the positionality chart that's going to be in the show notes, if you're not in the center of that, the world is looking at you in ways that you don't consent to. Right. So let's just name for our listeners what's in the center of that chart. In the center of the chart, we have white, male, ruling, or wealthy class, U.S.-born, English-speaking, native language, able-bodied, Protestant, Catholic, heterosexual. And everybody else is moving further outside of that center. Right. I mean, people are just themselves. But the fact that that's what's centered is what's messed up. It shouldn't be a circle that has a center with that in it in the first place. So if you take that class, Building a Multiracial Society from the Center for White American Culture, they'll talk about what it takes to build a multiracial society and how you can respect differences in unique ethnic groups and things like that, how there can be some overlap. Obviously, there's going to be when it comes to people like me as a Haitian, Dominican, Italian-American woman. So I have mixed ethnic you know, background. I don't identify as a racial. I, I know I'm I know I've been racialized, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'm a person with a lot of lighter white skin privilege who lives in a world that favors whiteness that is of mixed ethnicity and what they would call mixed race. And um, I don't, I don't like to call myself mixed race because race is a construct to begin with, but I get it. And I get that that's how people define me. And I, and I will go along with what they mean by that. And I'm not denying anything about that. And I say, sure, I'm a woman of color. Um, but I also have a lot of light skin racial advantage and that has afforded me a lot of privilege and ignorance for 40 years. And I only started doing this work a few years ago. So even though I'm mixed, even though I'm sort of the epitome of what we're talking about, uh, the offspring, the progeny of, of the couples that we're talking about, uh, this was not discussed in my household at all. And it's mm. work that I had to dig into and lean into. So the whole thing about couples and parenting, I think is also super important because the more that the person who's in the center that you just mentioned, even if they're a white woman, they're still more centered in many ways. Um, the more that they do work on, you know, exploring and understanding sort of the history, uh, the more that they're going to be able to show up uh, in a way with their kids that's that's actually dealing with the realities of what's out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, as someone who is in an interracial marriage, raising uh, children who are also, um, they have light melanated skin, but they are not white. And being aware of their experience in the world, of, of my husband's experience, my children's experience is something that it takes a lot of work for me on a daily basis because I don't see the world. I don't experience the world. Um, people don't treat me the way that they are treated. Yeah. 
I, I think that's the whole thing. I don't get to consent to the way other people see me or view me. You can do the same exact thing and just be in a body that looks a little bit different and you get treated a completely different way. And that scene from like the way in which people give you coffee or don't or cut in line at Starbucks or not, or the way in which somebody mm -hmm. takes your order or doesn't at a dinner table. I mean, it shows up in so many ways. And for you, and, and it has interesting flips sometimes, right? Like my husband and I noticed that there are certain places in our community where he gets treated a certain way and I'm more in that center of privilege. And there are other places where, because he's a man and I'm a woman, that center of privilege flips. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, you know, there are times we'll use it to our advantage and we'll notice it and we'll know in this place, if you take the lead here, we're going to do better. And in this place, if I take the lead, we're going to do better. And so um, those are conversations that we have. Yeah. I mean, I think being strategic in the face of understanding and really knowing that like we're in a shitty system that's fundamentally not really equitable and then being strategic about how to work optimally as a partnership within that system is just a really like, let's get real kind of awareness where like we're on the same team and we're going to have to do this, even though we don't like, we don't co-sign and rubber stamp the way that this is the system we're in. It's a shitty yeah, system, it's a shitty but system. Like, we're going to figure out how to best navigate it for now and then do whatever work we do you know, beyond that to kind of uproot it and change it at a foundational level, but be strategic. I want to come back to talking about that capacity that the, the couple really to be healthy nurtures within themselves to live in that reality of understanding each other's experience in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to really understand your own experience in the world first. And Black people understand their own experience. White people don't understand their own experience. And that's why- you know, pause there? About, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I don't want to pass over that. I think that's too big to pass over. And this is, I think, one of the really important pieces here is that a lot of white people do not understand their experience in the world. And that is, that is a privilege that they haven't even had to notice and it's also part of white supremacy and it's also part of how the white body supremacy systemically has invaded all of us, that it has an impact on all of our bodies. It's not just people of color that are impacted by this. White people are also impacted in a different way. Yeah. Neuroses, anxiety, depression. Not knowing uh, themselves. Shame, numbness. Uh, Association. Yeah. All of that. I mean, hundred percent. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not fun to be you. You think it is, but it's not because you have to like, you can't let your guard down for two seconds because somebody else is going to take your place because that's what happens in a patriarchal, hierarchical, oppressive sort of system. So, you know, we don't just get to be us there either. Somebody else has a smaller tush or a bigger boobs or a blonder hair. If you're a girl or somebody, whatever. Um, so that idea of it's called dual consciousness, you know, what W.B. Du Bois talked about a long time ago, like for every person who's marginalized, they're living in two worlds. One, my world that I know and understand, my lived experience, and two, the world I need to navigate, the world of whiteness, where certain things are prized and privileged and other things are not. And how do I navigate that? And that's what people don't get. When you go into graduate school and you sit there and you're talking to some teachers and administrators about stuff and they're trying to like set you up for something that they say is neutral about what's polite, what's proper, what's the way in which you do X or Y or Z, or they have no idea that your actual lived experience honoring who you are is completely anathema to the system in this case at the meso level, the university that has been set up through the whiteness oppressive lens that then you are not down with and that there could be another way. Now we have normalized this to such an extent that it has infiltrated our trainings. It has infiltrated our therapy. Freud didn't invent any of this relational West, you know what I mean? This is just a way of talking about stuff that indigenous folks and, you know, collectivist cultures have been doing in many other ways for a long time. When Bessel van der Kolk, the trauma therapist, talks about doing yoga as a good therapy for trauma, I mean, of course, but also is like dancing and singing and bouncing around and, you know, doing all the kinds of things that in Western white 
assimilated culture, you were programmed and told not to do and shamed for doing. Yeah. So we are not a well society. We are culturally, somatically a dissociative, what we would call avoidant or dismissive society. And that's, we want to move to secure attachment culturally. We don't want to be, that's living relationally. That's living with integrity. That's full respect living. This is otherwise defense, fear, contraction, functional adults use Terry Reel's language around the idea of being the angry teenager, or if you're on the female side, oftentimes dipping into the wounded child with shame. No, this whole business of embodied anti-racism or waking up to the world, being able to see your partner's experience, putting yourself in their shoes, having the compassion and empathy for their experience, being very clear about what you don't know and haven't lived and also doing the work to be honest about leaning in and studying it and getting curious about it and asking them about their experience and how it's different from yours. That's how we grow as a society and we earn secure attachment culturally. So where do you suggest that folks begin? Because this is, there's so much work ahead in terms of reconnecting, in terms of waking up, in terms of, um, bringing more consciousness um, and compassion into their experience. Where do you suggest that folks begin? What is the entry point for people who maybe haven't done this work? Well, if you're partnered with someone who's a person of color, just take stock and just say, I've been ignorant. I've been privileged. I've been advantaged. I haven't known it. I've been living under a lot, a whole set of assumptions that are just not true. And, um, you know, I'm starting to wipe, wipe the lens clean. And when I actually look at the landscape, there's a lot more crap out there than I, than I was aware of before, you know? Um, and I think just sort of sit with that. Most people who sort of start to like take in the realities of just what they saw this summer um, in terms of the killings, uh, you know, the modern day lynchings. Uh, I, I think, sitting with that in a way that isn't like that I need to go away, go away into a shame place or go mm -hmm. away into a place of like, oh, well, that's, you know, I, I need to be privileged. I think that's number one. So distress tolerance and comfort is really distress, distress tolerance and discomfort tolerance is really important. And that has to do with nervous system regulation, that has to do with being able to understand how to regulate your nervous system. So if you want to work with someone like me or someone else who does somatic work and, and trauma stuff to kind of get in touch with how to do that, that's number one. Number two is there's nothing wrong with you. Nobody's saying because you're a white person, you're a bad person. Nobody's saying that, you know, that that doesn't go together. We're saying the system is bad and it has affected you also, although differently than someone in a you know, black body, it has affected you also to your detriment. Um, it, what looks like privilege or feels like rest or whatever, isn't so much. And so kind of naming and knowing that. And then from that place, like there's nothing wrong with me. Okay. I noticed that I go into the shame place. I noticed that I still feel, you know, unworthy. Well, then we go back to RLT. We go back to positive self-esteem, healthy self-regard. I'm enough and I matter. I'm no better or worse than anyone else. We reconnect with ourselves first. We maybe do a little bit of the pieces around like, what is all the crap that I feel crappy about? And this is what kills me about whiteness. Everybody has all these little individual things like, oh, well, if my father wasn't an alcoholic, if he really loved me, if I was able to fix this, then he wouldn't have beat me up. If I had kept my parents together, I never really you know, had any self-confidence because my brother was the one who got the attention because they were the straight A student and I was the goofball. What do you think that really is about? That's whiteness. That's not about your family. That's about whiteness as it plays out in your family. So it's the big system that has been screwing you over and making you feel like a piece of crap forever. So know that. And then you can say, okay, to your partner, ugh, I've just sort of taken stock of all of this stuff. I want to know more about your experience in the world, how it's different from mine. I'm open and curious. I'm reading some books. I'm taking some classes. I'm learning a little bit more about this whole charade 
you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz, this whole thing that we've been living in, pulling back the curtain. And I want to hear from you. And I want to listen to understand, again, to use an RLT thing, not to speak and defend and blame or say whatever it is. I really want to understand your experience. And I want to be a safe place. I want to be a soft, welcoming, warm harbor for you to feel as though you can talk to me about any issues and any things that you might be bumping up into about microaggressions, about slights at work, about things that wouldn't happen to me because I'm not in your body, but that I want to hear about because you matter to me. And if you're in pain, that matters to me. And if you want a list of the classes and books and stuff like that, you can go to my website under maximateclarity.com slash resources, or you can take the class that I just offered through Therapy Wisdom called Embodied Anti-Racism, because even though the live calls just ended in November, the class is up and you can watch all of the recordings and um, you can still get the CEU credits and things like that if you're a therapist. Um, because I go over all of this stuff. Uh, you know, you gotta do some of the work inside and then go outside, um, but stay centered and connected to yourself so that you can actually genuinely be centered when you connect with others. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, thank you so much, Francine. Mm. Yeah, I tend to do the inside out thing. I think it's beautiful and so needed in this world in this time right now. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you, Rebecca. Uh, you know, this is an important topic and I hope that anybody who wants to do any more work on it, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you know, I also do case consultations and things like that. And um, you also have your own podcast. That's true. Um, it's called Rerooted, R-E-R-O-O-T-E-D on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. And I do talk to a lot of folks about this stuff, like Resma Menicum, like, um, you know, Janet Helms, who did the summary stages of racial identity development. And she talks about how being non-racist is insufficient and why being anti-racist is kind of more where we come to. And then, of course, yes, we're all one in this non-dual unity way that everybody's asking for now post-election, but that we don't want to spiritually bypass. And so yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot there on the podcast that would be rich for people about this, not so much about couples, but about the macro issues that are out there. Totally. Thank you again. I really appreciate being able to bring this to the listeners. Me too. Thanks, Rebecca. Take good care. You too. Hey, honey. Hey, baby. <laughs> We've never done this before. No, we haven't. So this is new. I um, wanted to bring you in to just kind of, you've just listened to this episode. I did. What's come up for you? Your conversation with Francesca was... Um... It was insightful. Um, for me, I heard a lot of um, things that sounded familiar. I heard a few things that were also a bit of confirmation in my own gut feelings about certain things in the world or certain how certain people adopt people's other cultures or parts of their culture for themselves. I have feelings on that. There's a lot of moments of recognition for myself being brown it did conjure up memories of being you know in situations where I wasn't comfortable where I had to kind of play in a certain way just to make sure nothing was going to happen what I'm also hearing is that in an, in an embodied way a lot of what you were hearing really made sense to you like in a lived experience yeah way. a lived experience correct yeah you know what strikes me is that these conversations are not part of our everyday between us like we don't have these conversations all the time no not at all i mean we don't look at each other and go we don't think about each other's race sometimes we think about each other's culture i'm really curious if you'd share what is it like for you to be in an interracial marriage with me? For me, I don't really think of it as an interracial marriage. Um, you know, we have mixed children, and that's pretty obvious. And there are moments in our lives, those differences of, I won't say race, but culture, bumped 
clashed, they conflicted at times, or there was certain ignorance on one side or another, and it was just became a, kind of a a bump in the road that we needed to kind of figure out. Other than that, it's not something you think about that it's much. Not, it's not something I think about at all. Really. Do you think it's something that I think about more than you? I do think <laughs> you think about it more than I do. Yeah. 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 What does that feel like? I find it in my mind, my, my gut, my knee jerk reaction is, what are you worrying about? Mm-hmm. You know, that's my knee jerk reaction. We are who we are. Um, and that's not going to stop us from being, you know, us as a family, as a man and wife, as lovers. It's not going to stop it. Do you ever think about how other people see us? Like, do you ever think about how the world sees us from the outside? Not, not how you and I see our marriage, you know, like not what it feels like inside of our partnership, but... Do you ever think about how other people look at us or see us? Does that ever impact you? Very rarely do I ever think about that. What about with all the anti-Asian hate lately? That has entered my mind a few times. Um, I am certainly a little bit more uh, on guard mm-hmm. lately. What do you think for like you know folks that are listening to this episode? What what would you want? people to be thinking about as they like take this information home with them I think the root of it all is that we are all just people (laughs) and we should just be treating each other like people thanks for joining me honey so that wraps up today's episode you can learn more about my connectfulness counseling practice and my online workshops at connectfulness.com I want to express my deep gratitude for Sarah and Chris Ferris, the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for the Connectfulness Practice podcast, which they recorded and mixed at Kidney Stone Studio. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. Stay tuned for another episode next month. Take good care. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.